Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show. I am sorry if I was a little bit sleepy there on the uptake. I was engrossed in a text conversation with my producer, and he said, can I put you on? And then I realized I was on. So I am here now. It is Thursday. No, it's Tuesday. I was so sleepy I got to Thursday. Tuesday, November 1st, 2022, and we are live from Ottawa. Now, this is not the Public Order Emergency Commission hearing room. I can assure you this is my uh, hotel room in Ottawa, but uh, the show must go on. And interestingly enough, I should say that the uh, commission hearing is still underway right now. Bridget Belton, who's one of the early convoy organizers, is testifying right now. Uh, so I have one of my colleagues uh, keeping an eye on that, and we'll have any updates from that as the uh, evening goes on. But the problem is this is actually going to be a really, really intense process over the remaining weeks of this, because originally they scheduled seven weeks of hearings, and they're going very late into the evening. And it seems like that is pushing later and later. So I want to talk a little bit about what happened today. I also want to talk about the rather explosive evidence that was put forward yesterday, which we reported on at True North, but I think it bears repeating here. Uh, this is a text message conversation that was taking place between two members of the federal government, between Mary Liz Power, who is a, an issues and policy advisor in Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's office, the Prime Minister's office, and Alexander Cohen, who is, I think he was the press secretary at the time. Now he's the director of communications in Marco Mendicino's office, Marco Mendicino being the public safety minister. So you've got a senior political staffer in the office of Justin Trudeau, a senior political staffer in the office of Marco Mendicino. And they're talking about the convoy narrative. Let's play a clip from Brendan Miller, lawyer for the Freedom Convoy organizers, in his cross-examination of former Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly. All right. So what this is, sir, this is a text message from a fellow by the name of Alexander Cohen. Are you familiar with him? It doesn't ring a bell, sir. Okay. He's with, the pro he's with uh, Minister Marciano's office, uh, Minister of Public Safety, and it's between him and... Mary Liz Power, are you familiar with Mary Liz Power? Again, the, the names aren't ringing a bell. Okay, she's with the uh, Prime Minister's office. So I'm just gonna read that to you for you so you have an understanding. And this is from about the 24th, on or before the 24th of January. And it says, I got a quick response. People are into it. Let me know if your boss is too. Happy to help however I can. This is what I sent through though, by the way. Hi, I just had a chat with Alex at PS, meaning public safety, who had a bit of an interesting idea. As you saw in the pod goals chat, the truckers convoy and some of their more extreme comments in brackets, i.e. calling for a January 6th style insurrection, close brackets, are getting more coverage in the media. Alex was surveying whether there'd be interest in his boss doing some media on this eventually. He was chatting with Mediciano about it right before he went into the cabinet retreat. Now I can tell you the cabinet retreat was on the 24th. That's how I know it was before the 24th. I think there could be an opportunity to get in on this growing narrative of the truckers, particularly with the research that LRB is doing into their backers. My thoughts of the framing here would be similar to what PM slash Blair, meaning the Prime Minister and uh, Minister Blair, 
said last year when January 6 occurred. And the first thing is, our democracy is something we need to nurture and protect every day. Now, that text message then continues, we will always support the right to peaceful protests. Some of the call that organizers of these events are making are concerning, and we're taking them seriously, in brackets, would need something to back this up, close brackets. We'll continue to monitor the situation closely. The fine line to walk would be to ensure we are not looking like we're directing the police, which obviously is not the goal here. Hoping to canvas your thoughts. Alex said uh, he'd come back to me with a proposal this afternoon when he gets to chat with Mediciano again, and obviously pending his boss and our, uh, our interest in looking into this further. And if you could scroll down. And Alex responds, thanks. I had an initial chat with my boss, and he's supportive, but wants to wait a day or two. There's a danger that if we come down too hard, they might push out the crazies. And then the response, I think that's fair. Apparently, Global and others are working on stories. Maybe see how those land. So when I show you this, and I, I, after this, the exact same sort of narrative came out from the federal government following these suggestions from their staff. Is that misinformation? I'm sorry, I can't really comment. There's just not enough context to know how, who these people are, how, what they represent, what information or, or influence they have. So that was a pretty surgical way of doing it. Now, Peter slowly, of course, says he, he can't comment on it. But you can see if we put those text messages up on the screen there, it's actually remarkably candid, remarkably candid how these two political staffers engage with each other. Mary Lynn, uh, sorry, Mary Liz Power says that, you know, it's all about getting in on this narrative. Now, what is this narrative, you ask? Well, that narrative is that the truckers are extreme. She says it's a narrative that outlets like Global and others are about to start doing more stories on. I wonder how the Prime Minister's office knows what stories the mainstream media is working on that are going to be damning to the truckers. And I think the most explosive part of that is the comment from Mr. Cohen from Marco Mendicino's office saying that they don't want to come down too hard on the protesters too early because they don't want the convoy organizers to drop the, quote, crazies, unquote. So there seems to be, I mean, there's a lot in that. There's a lot, there's a tacit understanding that the crazies are a small minority of this movement. But more importantly, it's that the Minister of Public Safety, whose job is supposed to be, I would assume, the public safety of this country, his office wants the so-called crazies in the convoy. It's almost as if the government saw this as a political opportunity rather than a national emergency, rather than a public order crisis, which is what would be required if at all it could be justified, the Emergencies Act. And that's what's on trial right now, not officially, but unofficially throughout the uh, last three weeks and the next three weeks in Ottawa, where I am, the Public Order Emergency Commission, which was the uh, bureau, the, the process rather, that got those text messages released. The government of Canada had to file them in evidence. It was part of its disclosure. But it's fascinating to me. And when I read that, there was a part of me that thinks like, this isn't really newsworthy. We knew the government was trying to score political points off of this, but it still is interesting how brazen they were in that, that the minister responsible for public safety, his office was focused on the narrative, the communications. How do we leverage this for political gain? 
And it was interesting because if the public safety minister was focused on de-escalation, on turning down the temperature, on making this less of a crisis, making this less of an emergency, for starters, the federal government could have met with convoy organizers, but they saw a different way. Because the more they could point to so-called crazies, the more they could come out as being on the winning side of this. And that's why in my book, The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world, which, by the way, by virtue of having written that, a lot of the stuff that's been coming out in the commission has been old news to me, which I and I don't say that to gloat. I just say that because there's some stuff that I'm like, wait, wasn't didn't everyone know this? And and that's like how you can sneakily be like, ah, oh, you didn't read my book. You would have known that X had happened like today. A great example of that is today. So Chris Barber who is uh, one of the most uh, one of the most prominent organizers of the convoy an actual uh, cross border long haul trucker himself uh, chris barber uh, was testifying this morning. He was the very first convoy organizer to speak. And they were asking him all sorts of questions about everything, including things that he really didn't have anything to do with in the convoy process. Like there was this one, I think it was the government of Canada's lawyer. I might be wrong. It, it was. The government of Canada's lawyer was giving him a string of these so-called intelligence reports that were being prepared, these daily briefings. And they were asking him questions about like, oh, this one referenced Christian Freeland and oh, this one referenced the World Economic Forum. And Chris Barber's answer was like, yeah, I didn't know. I got those emails. I didn't open them. I know nothing about them. And then the government of Canada lawyer just kept trying with it. And Chris was like, yeah, like I said, I just, you know, people email me stuff. They text me stuff. I just, you know, whatever it's, it's there. So really no, there, there wasn't that zinger there. There wasn't that silver bullet that I think the federal government lawyer was anticipating. But the reason I bring up Chris Barber's testimony and the dueling narratives surrounding the convoy is to point out this one section. Now, I'm going to play a very brief snippet. And the reason it's a brief snippet is because this was the brief snippet that a global news reporter shared online. And it is a brief snippet that takes a lot of liberties, as does the accompanying tweet. Accompanying tweet. Why don't you take a look? Yeah, but you guys raised an enormous amount of money outside of that, right? You were raising thousands of dollars a day in cash and e-transfers, correct? Yeah, the e-transfers would have went into Ms. Slitch's personal bank account. Um, and cash? I don't know what happened with the cash. The cash was, there was always people donating cash. It was all around, I guess. So... That is a bit of an interesting clip. Now, just for context, that was lawyer Paul Champ, who is representing the Coalition of Ottawa Residents and Businesses. And Paul Champ is asking about the money, which was not an aspect of the convoy that Chris Barber was really doing all that much about. And what David Baxter of Global Rights is after the Freedom Convoys, GoFundMe got shut down. Chris Barber testifies e-transfers went to Tamara Leach's personal bank account, and he doesn't know what happened with all the cash. And you're like, oh, wow, that sounds like Tamara Leach was making away with millions. And then Rachel Gilmore, also of Global News, tweets the following. When Chris Barber is asked about the money the convoy raised, quote, the e-transfers would have went into Ms. Leach's personal bank account. As for the cash, he said, I don't know what happened with the cash. I left out two words from her tweet there, which are at the very top, when she says, oh, wow, treating this as explosive, treating it as a bombshell. Like Chris Barber has just admitted that Tamara Leach was putting all the money in her personal bank account, and then they don't know what happened with the cash. The reality is that clip, which I think was 22 seconds long, 
condensed what was a minutes-long exchange that covered a range of these issues. And it took it in a way that deliberately misrepresented the actual discussions. Now, the reason Chris Barber doesn't know what happened with all of the cash, and specifically that's referring to cash donations that were given after all the account freezes, after the GoFundMe uh, was shut down, after the court order prohibiting people from donating to Gifts and Go, and people were giving truckers cash. Chris Barber said, yeah, I wasn't involved in that, so I really don't know what happened. I know people were giving out envelopes to truckers, but I, I wasn't overseeing it. So when he's saying I don't know what happened all the cash, he means that he literally was not involved in that part of the operation. And the money going into Tamara Leach's personal account, this is like as old news as it gets, because nothing has been relitigated and discussed more about the convoy than the money. What happened here was GoFundMe initially released $1 million of the funds that have been donated. They didn't have a corporation set up at this early stage. So the GoFundMe needed to give it to someone. So Tamara Leach was the one who set up the account. They had a plan in place to distribute the money. So GoFundMe transferred a million dollars into a personal bank account in Tamara Leach's name, which was only used for convoy funds. It wasn't the account that she used to buy her groceries or to go and buy a canoe from Canadian Tire. I don't know if Tamara Leach has ever bought a canoe from Canadian Tire. That was just the weirdest incident I could come up with as far as like a possible personal purchase. So I've been in Ottawa too long. I'm starting to be weird. And Tamara Leach uh, had this account. And then people also wanted to send direct e-transfers. They went into that account. It was all in one place. They had a finance committee. GoFundMe released that million dollars. Tamara took, I think it was like 20,000 or 17,000 out of that account. Then TD froze it. And they froze it very early on under their fraud prevention. And that account has never been unfrozen. And this is before the Emergencies Act. This is before the Ontario court order. This was all happening really quickly and really early on. The reason that's important is because this is all public record. This is all raised judicata, as they say. It's already been adjudicated. It's already known. It's already out there. That's not what raised judicata means. Bear with me. Latin's a little rusty. It hasn't been litigated yet because the case is ongoing. But it's not a surprise. So this idea that Tamara Leach was somehow siphoning money, which seemed to be the implication, I should say not the implication made by lawyer Paul Chan but by a lot of people on Twitter based on a couple of reporters that really haven't been too closely following, I'd say even Chris's testimony, let alone the remainder of all that came up today. So what's happened here is the convoy organizers are finally speaking. They're finally telling their story. And in doing so, it is completely shattering this narrative that we know Justin Trudeau's office and Marco Medicino's office were trying to peddle alongside the mainstream media of this being a protest that was rooted in extremism. And Bridget Belton, who I believe is testifying at this moment, one of the things she said just before the show started, I have to share here, because one of the lawyers asked her what she saw in Ottawa, what she saw. And this was her answer. What were you seeing in Ottawa on Wellington Street? Love, unity, people happy. This had been two years. People had been suppressed. Two years. People were struggling. Two years that our government had told us, shame your family. 
Do not allow them to come to Christmas. Do not allow them to come at Easter. Do not allow them to come to your home if they are not vaccinated, if they don't wear a mask. There was a lot of hate in Canada and the Toronto Sun supported it, or the Toronto Star, excuse me, supported it. People were evil towards each other and that is not what I saw in Ottawa. I saw love, I saw unity, I saw Quebec with Alberta, I saw Ontario with Quebec hugging. I saw people happy. It was the best thing that happened to our country in two years. She saw love, she saw unity, she saw Quebecers, she saw Albertans, she saw Ontarians, she saw them all together, and she saw people that were happy. Does that sound like the menacing group of extremists that warrant a crackdown? And it's interesting, there, there's been a lot of discussion about the effect that the convoy had on residents of Ottawa and businesses in Ottawa. And I, I think these are absolutely concerns that are worth hearing about. I don't like this binary that nothing bad happened, that no one was uncomfortable, that no one was... I, I don't like some of the really bizarre and extreme language like traumatized and phantom honking and all of that, but there were certainly effects. It was disruptive and any no one can say otherwise. But I want to hear more testimony on how transformative it was. And I, I want to talk about this in two different contexts. I'll, I'll play a clip first because I do want to be very diligent in reporting what's been happening at the Public Order Emergency Commission hearings. But I also want to offer my own thoughts on this after. This is a clip from Chris Barber, one of the convoy organizers, who talked about... Actually, I'm going to play two clips here. The first clip is, I think, a, an interesting one of just to him talking about his vaccination status because I want to put a human face on how vaccine mandates affect people uh, people like, again, Chris Barber, who was fully vaccinated, but was still one of the leaders of this national protest against vaccine mandates. Take a look. Is there any other ways that the that, again, doesn't matter the level of government for the purpose of the question? Is there any other way that the uh, public health uh, restrictions relating to COVID-19 affected you personally? Uh, personally, uh, the, when the when the COVID vaccine passport came in, made things a little tricky. Uh, we weren't allowed to enter restaurants anymore. Um, it was, I, I trucked throughout the whole pandemic. I, I never stopped. I, I was, I was, uh, I was eating in my truck. I had a coffee pot, a coffee maker in my truck. The restaurants were closed, gas stations were closed, bathrooms were closed. It was really tricky. I remember about two weeks into the pandemic thinking this isn't worth it and going home. And then uh, the customer demands kept climbing. So I ended up, I stayed. Did you yourself get vaccinated? Yes, sir. Why did you make that decision? Uh, I've spent the better part of 16 years running my company, keeping the big carriers away from my customer base, and I was at risk of losing all that hard work to not being able to cross the border anymore. So that, I, I just wanted to slip that in there because I, I think that a lot of people forget that when the government, for example, talks about how, oh, you know, most truckers are vaccinated. Well, a lot of them did exactly what Chris Barber did, where they got vaccinated because they knew it was their only way to function in the world. And, and a coerced choice is not a real choice. I mean, that's what we're always told about consent is that, you know, consent is, is not something that it can be true or authentic when you're backed into a corner. And that was the case with a lot. And I don't want to put words into Chris Barber's mouth. You can hear what he said in his own language. But I, I wanted to go back to that idea of the transformative effect of the convoy. So Bridget Belton, a woman who was at her wits end, and I posted a clip on Twitter. I, I won't play it here because it's very long. It's like five minutes. But you should go onto my Twitter after the show, not now, after the show, 
and take a look. And it's this very tearful, emotional video that she posted after she had just a horrendous encounter at the border when she was going back and forth across it as a trucker. And she was tearing up on the stand today in Ottawa watching this video and then teared up as she spoke a little bit later on about her experiences and, and what these mandates did to her. But you contrast that with the clip we played a couple of moments ago of her saying, yeah, in Ottawa, people were happy. And for the first time in two years, it was just this world that we thought had been taken away from us. And I to go back to this Chris Barber clip, he talked a lot on the stand about being an online troll and just being a guy that gets into fights and posts rude memes and all of that. There were there, literally the federal government entered into evidence two memes that Chris Barber shared about honking. One of them is a, a modified uh, parody screen grab of Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. And the other was, I can't remember, the other was just like a trombone or a trumpet. I can't actually see it on the screen right now. So uh, I'm going from memory. It's not that I don't know my wind instruments, but I, I love the brass section. I don't mean to offend the brass section out there. I think it was a trombone and it was, again, just making a joke about honking. But the memes are now evidence of a national emergency. But Chris talked about how he even reformed and changed the way that he engages with the world and communicates. And it was the convoy that did that. Take a look. Uh, this re media report says that you texted to Miss Leach. I know he's had issues. I've got skeletons in the closet too. Do you see that? Yes. Do you recall texting that to Miss Leach? Yes. Okay. What were the skeletons in your closet? Well, I've been, like I've said before, I've been an internet troll for many years. At this point in time, was there something in, was there, was there anything in particular that concerned you about what you had done on the internet? Nothing that was related to the convoy. What about things that were unrelated to the convoy? Yes. What concerned you? I used to post nasty, distasteful memes via share memes or, or just posting online in a negative way. And it's the commission's understanding that some, some members of the media uh, identified certain Facebook posts that you had made and, and, and had reported on them or tweeted about them. Is that something you were aware of at the time? Yep, they've been circulated for quite some time. And um, these include uh, Facebook posts uh, that contained racist and anti-Muslim comments. Is that a fair characterization? Yes. Okay. And I expect you may be asked questions about those by some of the parties, and I wanted to give you an opportunity now, if you wanted it, to speak to some of the racist or anti-Muslim things you posted. Well, I can honestly say that, that if anybody learned anything or grow, grew more during the convoy, it was me. I, uh, I, was, uh, I was a different person nine months ago, whatever it was, 10 months ago. Um, coming out here and seeing the amount of love and the, the people of all different colors, all different race, everything. It was, it was such a diverse crowd of people here. There was, um, I said there were so many tears. There was so many hugs. There was so much laughter. There was so much, it was, it changed the person. It changed me. How did you change? Uh, it, it just, it, it humbled me, I guess. It, uh, it made me realize that, uh, that a lot of the stuff that I used to post on the internet before was, was very distasteful. And uh, there's a better way to do it. So that, I think, is so key here. And if I can just sort of wrap up that 
strain of thinking on this. When I was writing my book, I interviewed, as many of you know, I've talked about it a bit before, uh, so many of the organizers and volunteers at all levels. I interviewed people that were just ordinary truckers, people that went out to support them on overpasses, people that had very key roles in the operation. I couldn't speak to everyone, but the one thing that I, I really took away from it, and one of the reasons it was so difficult, is that like every interview I did, with few exceptions, would go hours and hours and hours. And it was because these people just absolutely were transformed and changed by this chapter, by the convoy. And it was so meaningful in their own lives. And it was so meaningful to the country. And that story was one of the reasons I wrote the book. And it's a story that has been completely absent from the mainstream media coverage. Up until today, it's been completely absent from the Public Order Emergency Commission's hearings. And I, I think it has to be one of the enduring parts of this whole thing. When you hear from people like Bridget Belton and people like Chris Barber and later on from Tamara Leach, people that had lost hope in very real ways in the country that they've called home for their entire lives. And then the convoy comes along and they feel something again. And that that is seen by Justin Trudeau as a political opportunity, an opportunity to wedge people he doesn't like. And they do that by pretending that it is a national crisis and a public order emergency is absolutely shameful. Uh, we're going to shift gears here a bit. I want to bring in my very good friend and fellow, uh, I don't even know, independent media guy just seems too trite, but I'll, I'll say independent media titan, Aaron Gunn, who hails from the West Coast. Uh, Aaron, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Great to uh, chat with you as well, Andrew. It's great to be here. So just on the, I want to get to your documentary, Vancouver is Dying, in, in just a moment. But you're a BC guy. And I think oftentimes BC gets very misunderstood by the rest of Canada because you really have two provinces there. You've got Vancouver and then you've got the rest of, of British Columbia. And, and the political culture is very different. But a lot of people forget the convoy originated in Delta, BC. And obviously more people joined in Alberta, Saskatchewan. But but it was a very key part of this. And, and I was wondering just how that story in BC has unfolded outside of like the, the downtown Vancouver bubble. Yeah. Well, BC, I mean, you mentioned it's two provinces and one it's, it's arguably three or four, I suppose uh, you got the interior, you got Vancouver Island. Um, and then to your point where it started in Delta there. Um, yeah. I think there's been a lot, BC is a weird place because we've had some of the most repressive vaccine mandates in the country, but also had, some of the most relaxed uh, other COVID restrictions, I guess, you, I guess you might call. I remember in Ontario, you guys were shutting down restaurants and for the most part, everything in BC was pretty relaxed. So it's kind of a, a two-faced approach here in, in BC. Um, but I think it's, for the most part, this was a Canadian story and what was happening in BC was happening in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, Quebec, obviously, uh, Atlantic Canada. So. Um, I don't think there's anything specific to, to BC, just the same sort of thing that was happening uh, everywhere else. One of the stories, I think, of the pandemic, which ha has not been fully explored yet, I think more and more people are starting to talk about it, is how the lockdowns, the get to COVID zero, zero cases, exacerbated all of these other issues. I mean, we've heard anecdotally, and there's been some data about this, of drug overdoses, suicides, mental health, domestic violence. A lot of these issues, I mean, specifically on, on drugs, 
are, are very real issues in BC. And I was wondering if you could speak uh, in, in general and, and in Vancouver specifically about whether these things have just gotten worse because they've always been getting worse in, in the last few years or whether you think there is a connection between that trend and the, the lockdown issues that we've seen elsewhere. I think the lockdowns basically poured fuel on the fire. So it was already bad. The policies that the government were pursuing were making the problem worse. And then the lockdowns, the the impact of reduced government services, and also just uh, a feeling of isolation, I think, for a lot of people, I think exacerbated uh, that problem uh, that was already bad and was already getting worse. So I, uh, we, we can see now that COVID's over, that the, the drug overdoses are, are still there. Um, so I, I think if that if that if that makes sense, you had a fire that was already burning, and and government policies during COVID just threw a whole bunch of uh, of gasoline on on top of it. Let's take a look at the trailer for Vancouver is dying. People are afraid in Vancouver. You shouldn't have to walk down the street looking over your shoulder, but that's the way it is now. You just kind of get used to this being part of what it means to be a Vancouverite. This isn't normal, and this is actually something wrong, and that we should hold our political leaders accountable for presiding over something that is clearly not okay. We had a good city in the 90s. What the f happened, man? What is happening to Vancouver? One of the wealthiest and most naturally beautiful cities in all of North America has been beset by skyrocketing crime, violent attacks, and a crippling battle with addiction that's literally left thousands of people dead. But what is at the root of all these problems? Do police have the tools they need to do their jobs? Are violent offenders being released with little to no regard for public safety? And has an ideal obsession with so-called safe supply and free drugs overshadowed the desperate need for treatment, recovery, and rehabilitation. Harm reduction. Somebody's got a sense of humor, man. Because yeah. that shit ain't helping nobody, man. Right. It's helping everybody get high more. Everywhere you look that this stuff has taken hold significantly, the cities have become destroyed. My name is Aaron Gunn, and this is Politics Explained. The whole thing is incredibly well done, not just the, the trailer, but I think the trailer gives people a sense of it. Uh, it's made, I think, a, a pretty significant impact already. I think you had uh, the Premier of Alberta, Danielle Smith, uh, share it uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, let me ask you, first off, why you did this and, and what the overarching message is of it. Well, I think like some of the other journalism I do in this this series specifically, um, it was it was an issue that, that confounded me and I... I wanted to know why, as someone who's lived in British Columbia, coastal BC especially, uh, you know, over the past 20 years, and watched as this problem has gotten worse and worse, homelessness, drug overdoses up from when the problem was supposed to be bad 20 years ago, 150 deaths per year, now up to over 2,000. Uh, what's going on? Why are we pumping more and more money at this problem and nothing is getting better? And then you saw the one, one of the side effects of this or the symptoms with crime has just absolutely been exploding uh, here. There's four violent random stranger attacks every day in the streets of Vancouver where random people are just getting attacked. This isn't gang related or anything like this. So what is happening? And let, trying to kind of peel back the curtain and, and look past some of the kind of the same mainstream media talking points and figure out what's actually going on. And, and like you said, it's just uh, it's, it's been explosive and um, I think it's, it's getting close to 2 million views now uh, although one thing that we can take away, which was great, uh, a week and a half 
after we released it, the municipal elections were held here in, in uh, BC. And uh, going into it, the incumbent mayor, who we were very critical of, uh, was about tied in the polls and he ended up uh, losing by about 20 points. So uh, we'd like to think the, the video uh, played a little bit of an impact on that result. Yeah, it's always good to get results in, in such a clear and, uh, you know, rooted in metrics uh, way. I, I will ask you about the, the drug thing specifically here, because I, I know in a lot of cases it, it's very ideological for people. It's it's never been in, in my experience where folks discuss this in terms of what's the best way to deal with this crisis. They you, you have people that very much are part of this permissive, ignore the criminal law. Uh, they use terms like harm reduction approach. And then you have other people that are the more tr traditional law and order types. Are you still seeing that on left-right lines or is it starting to change? Because I think it's very difficult to take the abstract, no, 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 we need to give these people what they want attitude when your car is getting broken into, when your business is being broken into. And that's, I've seen it on a smaller scale in my own city, London, which has a very significant and growing drug problem. And I'm curious if it's shifting in Vancouver. That there is a growing realization, which is why I think the video has, has resonated in the way it has, that what we're doing now isn't working. I think that is, that is, that is the consensus that is forming. Um, and also, I think moving away from, I think with some of those who are big proponents of harm reduction, always try to, to paint this picture of a, of a binary choice between like the war on drugs, uh, where you know, you're throwing people who are using drugs in jail uh, versus what they're doing. And that's just not the case. There's lots of countries in the world that have taken different approaches. Um, you know, just because you're not throwing uh, people in jail uh, you, you know, for, for simple possession doesn't mean that the solution has to be, we're now just handing out free drugs. There's a case in Vancouver where they were putting basically heroin in vending machines uh, uh, to supply the, 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 the drug addictions of, of these people. And I think um, the other point, I just wanted to go back to your first question of what really got me into this, was this, there's a big marketing push in British Columbia, and I think it's happening in other provinces as well, about stigma, about, you know, this problem is all to do with stigma. We need to destigmatize the situation. And when you drive down the streets of Vancouver, Victoria, and you see people lying here and just, just dying en masse and overdosing en masse, it's not, it's not because of stigma. It's not, it's not that there's too much stigma on, on drugs. It somehow led to people using drugs and dying. It doesn't even make any sense. So um, really exploring, exploring this topic and trying to, uh, trying to get to the bottom of it was, I think, important. I remember when I first went to San Francisco a few years back, I had been, I had seen the conservative parody of San Francisco online of like people defecating on streets and, you know, homeless people in every corner and drive. And I was like, okay, yeah, 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 whatever. And then I went there and it was exactly as I had been told, like the, the parody was real. And it was actually quite upsetting because I, I had seen, you know, old photos and videos of San Francisco looking like a wonderful place. And it is just geographically a beautiful place. And Vancouver is very similar. And I don't know if you'd say Vancouver is worse or better than San Francisco, or if it, it's even a necessary comparison, but it, it's a city that has so much, like it's a beautiful city. It's got culture, it's got dining, it's got the ocean, but it's also a, a city that is just like a hellscape in some ways. I mean, uh, there's a lot of parallels on, on the West Coast of the United States with what's happening on the West Coast of Canada. British Columbia is actually a significantly higher death rate from overdoses than, than say, Washington State or, hmm. or, or California. 
So the, the problem is, is very acute uh, here. And the per permissiveness around drugs, handing out free drugs. I mean, if you ask the people in Vancouver that are pushing these policies, they would say that they are at the vanguard of kind of progressive drug policy in North America. And I, I would argue that the vanguard of, of, of disastrous drug policy, but they certainly are the ones that are pushing the limits the most. And this started, if you go back to, I think it's 2002, where Insight opened, the first safe injection site in North America, where people were allowed to, to, to go and, and shoot up uh, illicit drugs. And ever since that point, um, it's, it seems to me that as the results keep getting worse and worse and worse, their response is always that it's just because we haven't gone far enough. And it's mm. just amazing when you contrast that with other countries uh, in Europe, like Portugal and Sweden and others who have taken dramatically different approaches with, with way better results. And yet where it's just, it's so ideological here in, in British Columbia. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's sad to see the results. And it's, it, I mean, it's not surprising you see the left do this on other issues as well, where it becomes almost like this religious, like, devotion to ideology that to the point of which you just ignore things that are happening right in right in front of your face which is i mean downtown vancouver um you know you'd have to it, it's it's amazing you can see it visually in front of you the results of these failed policies i i will say it's very inconvenient for libertarians like me who would say in theory yes legalize all drugs you know if you use drug it harms only you not other people therefore it's like it's like smoking. It's like if you do it on your own and it hurts you, it's no one else's problem. What's your response? Because I know you're you and I see eye to eye on a lot of issues. So how do you respond to that? Where why does the libertarian fantasy break down in reality? Well, uh, so there's a couple. I mean, I mean, there's the drug issue. There's the criminal justice issue. I mean, this documentary covers a lot of it. But part of the problem is that these people develop drug addictions. These drug addictions cost a lot of money to maintain. You obviously can't be uh, uh, when you're in a when you're perpetually high. You can't maintain a, a job or whatever. So you resort to crime. It usually begins with petty crime. And right now, I interviewed the head of the police union uh, and police officers who you know they arrest the same person for the exact same crime twice in 24-hour periods repeatedly like they'd arrest so them the, the literal revolving door the literal revolving door they get put in prison they get a they released on a promise to appear they go and commit the exact same crime and the cop just by happenstance ends up arresting them again so um the the, the criminal justice system the fact uh, is a big part of this problem as well what i would say with addiction and libertarianism is um, I mean, I, I kind of view it as, as, as a parallel of, of if you wouldn't allow, um, at least I think most versions of libertarianism wouldn't allow for slavery, like the right of somebody to basically sell themselves into slavery. And I think with these hard drugs, like are talking crystal meth and, and heroin and these kinds of things, um, eventually these people basically lose the ability to, to act rationally um, to 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 process kind of the uh, look out for their own best interests make make uh, um, as as the addicts that I interviewed would talk about they would commit crimes and do things that morally they would never have otherwise done or were never raised it just becomes your sole focus uh, in life is achieving the next high and everything ends up revolving around that and I just don't think that's something that is that is really sustainable in a, in a free an open society. I think I think there should be as, as few rules as possible, but we still need uh, 
certain rules uh, or else things descend into into chaos and, and on anarchy like we've, we're seeing in parts of Vancouver. Uh, where can people watch the documentary? People can watch the documentary on YouTube. So uh, you can type in Vancouver is dying on, on YouTube uh, and it should uh, pop up or you can visit my channel, which is uh, youtube.com slash Aaron Gunn BC. And you should definitely give Aaron a follow on YouTube anyway. Uh, but do check out the documentary. It's a great one. Aaron Gunn, great to see you as always. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. All right. That was uh, Aaron, Gan- Aaron Gunn, independent media tycoon. That's the uh, term I'm using. And the I said Titan earlier, not tycoon. Now he sounds like the Monopoly man. So in any case, the one thing I'll, I'll say on Vancouver before we end, I mean, it's easy. Conservatives used to get into this habit, I found, of just like rolling the rise at British Columbia. And I, I think it was fascinating when we saw, as Aaron alluded to earlier, during the uh, first and second waves of lockdown, Quebecers with their so-called conservative government getting a curfew, Ontarians with their so-called conservative government getting a, a vaccine passport, Albertans with their so-called conservative government getting vaccine passports as well. And meanwhile, the NDP government in uh, British Columbia was like, yeah, yeah, the restaurants, they can stay open, you can keep going there. And it is weird that that same place, as Aaron said, then has like the most enduring vaccine mandates for its public civil servants. So absolutely crazy. And again, I go back to the Public Order Emergency Commission, why this was such a national movement, because people had different concerns and different issues. Chris Barber in his testimony said, my issue was the cross-border trucker mandate. Bridget Belton's and her issue was the cross-border trucker mandate. But other people were saying, there was one guy, we don't have a photo of it because I'm just like throwing this uh, at my producer. uh, So don't feel like you're missing something, Sean. It's okay. But there was like one of the great signs that I saw in during the convoy was a guy, je veux aller au Canadian Tire. I want to go to Canadian Tire. That was a little bit tongue in cheek, but that was the whole point is that even that was taken away from unvaccinated Quebecers, the right to go to Canadian Tire, if for whatever reason, that was what you wanted to do on a uh, vendredi or whatever. And that's ridiculous. And people brought all of these to Ottawa. And when they were there, they felt it was this incredibly meaningful moment in their lives. And to Justin Trudeau, that was a national emergency. We got to end things here. I want to thank all of you, by the way, who subscribed to our YouTube channel. We had a 100,000 subscriber goal by the end of the month. It was a bit of a nail biter, but we made it there before midnight last night. So I thank you very much for that. And if you value the work we're doing, please head on over to donate.tnc.news, donate.tnc.news, and you can do a a one-time contribution or even better, sign up for monthly contributions. And we have some big perks planned for our insiders in the months and year ahead. So I thank you to all who are supporting us. We'll talk to you tomorrow with more updates from the Public Order Emergency Commission live from Ottawa. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.